0: What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people,
1: data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: I was thinking about something that my mom used to say to me when I was a kid when she was running her own business. And she always used to say, like, my business is a business where the personal and the professional mix all the time. What she meant by that was like her company is I think predominantly women and it's not a big company, but she said, you know, in my, for my employees, like my employees are, are women who are juggling both, both like taking care of their aging parents or taking care of their kids as well as coming to work. And so when the phone rings, you always pick it up. And if you have to leave, you have to leave. And that's what happens. And as someone who is working at Bain or in private equity, where, I mean, I like slept what, six hours a day when I was lucky and otherwise basically, you know, gave myself to my job. I kind of saw that maybe initially as weakness.
1: You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine legorio Chafkin. Today's episode... Be the whole person. The pandemic taught companies, I mean, it taught all of us, a lot about what's really important in life. And for our guest today, the founder and CEO of Women's Wear brand, M.M. Lafleur, it was a turning point and a revelation. Sarah LaFleur's business started as a solution for working women to dress stylishly and simply in high quality, but not quite Bloomingdale's price tag clothing. She'd started her career in high powered management consulting and in private equity. And she was used to just putting her whole self into work, sacrificing sleep, sacrificing family, everything. And we all know the stress that goes into starting a company. But it wasn't just the pandemic that affected Sarah this past year. She also began a family. And that involved not just one new baby, but in an improbable turn of events, three babies. It turned her idea of balance on its head. And now she's rethinking how all her employees, even those in retail, can have more flexibility and be their whole selves on the job. Some of that thinking comes back to Sarah's own mother. She's the namesake of the business M.M. Lafleur, and the inspiration for so much of what Sarah does. The apple
0: didn't fall far from the tree in the sense that my, my mom was an entrepreneur and um, she had started her own business, I think, when I was around seven or eight. And she had launched it from our basement Um, but she was definitely the unusual one in our family. My dad's American. My mom's Japanese. My dad worked for the state department. So we were moving around every three to four years to different countries. Um, we spent a lot of time in Japan though. And on my mother's side of the family, it felt like everyone was a civil servant. So I just thought growing up in some ways, I was like, that's the only job that's out there is to go work in government, you know, and, uh, my mom kind of felt like the anomaly, the, uh, not the, the kind of common path taken. So much so that I think in high school, I thought I wanted to go be a relief worker at a refugee camp. And I actually did spend some time working in a refugee camp in college. And I did dabble in the nonprofit sector uh, a little bit, uh, both working in city government and for a nonprofit in South Africa. But long story short, you know, that's that's not where I found myself ultimately. And I, I I think it's very much realizing that what you think you're supposed to do with your life might be different from what you actually end up feeling is your passion. And I think also where
1: you end up Kind of shining as a person. So, so you had this interesting dual model of you know civil servant, steady job versus entrepreneur, building something from scratch with each of your parents. What what did your mom do? What was her business? And and what did you learn seeing her working on it? My mom. This was circa
0: nineteen ninety one to when catalog shopping was all the rage, and we lived in Washington D.C. at that time. We had my dad had just gotten transferred to to Washington. From Tokyo, and all of these amazing catalogs from you know, Horcho to CW, J. Crew was around, Hannah Anderson. Um, she was introducing these catalogs to initially her group of friends, but then a much wider audience in Japan who was just dying to get their hands on these American products. Japanese people kind of notoriously, um, even till today, I think, you know, not very good at English, feel a lot of intimidation uh, trying to reach out to American businesses. And so my mom was like, you know what? I'm going to introduce Japan to American catalogs. And so she started this company called Club Shop at Home and uh, took orders and communicated with all the American vendors. Uh, In some ways, it was so ahead of its time, bringing American direct-to-consumer businesses to Japan. And it was so fun because all of these products would get shipped to our house. And then my mom would repackage them and ship them to Japan. And we used to get catalogs up the wazoo. And actually, it's so funny, Christine, I haven't thought about this in so long, but you're making me just remember all of this stuff, just sitting in my mom's basement, pouring through catalogs and helping her unbox and box uh, products that then she would take to, to UPS. So that was her business and um, it evolved into something. Actually, she got particularly interested in one catalog called Diamond Essence, which is uh, no longer in, in existence, but what they were doing was selling artificial artificial diamonds. And she thought this was a really unusual niche market. And, and it still is. And I think now we're all talking about ethical diamonds and ethical sourcing of jewelry, but it was a really, really novel concept back then. And so she honed in
1: on that and ended up making that her main business, which is actually still the business that she runs today. Wow. Interesting. And I could see how that shipping... Tiny di- diamonds is a lot easier than than shipping large other catalog goods. <laughs> I mean, it's such a
0: good point. I mean, I think about how hard supply chain is for my business, shipping domestically and returns and exchanges and all of that. And yes, you're right.
1: I think it was a, a fairly complicated supply chain operation. Uh right coming out of our basement. <laughs> That's amazing. And I can see how, how that um, helped educate you in in clothing and in shipping and in so many different things. But but tell me, you had um, not an, a, a totally straight path to entrepreneurship after that point. You you went to Harvard and then you had sort of a small multitude of other careers. Isn't that right? That's really true. And uh, my 20s, I, I mean, there were a
0: lot of sleepless nights, I think, trying to figure out what my Calling wise, it sounds a little over the top when you say calling, almost like something religious, but I think I really felt that way. You know, I was, um, my family, I think was very career focused. They still are. I think for me, trying to find something that I really could give my all to felt like this really important thing to, for me to accomplish. So initially I thought I would go work for the United Nations, the high commissioner for refugees. Um, that's the UN agency that oversees refugee relief work or refugee coordination, I should say, setting policies, whatnot. And then I thought eventually, actually, I want to be the person on the ground. Um, so I explored that a bit. You know, it was interesting. I felt very, I think, powerless. And even the small moments that I got to Dab, uh in these careers. I think particularly, I think being in the refugee camp, um, you know, at the age of 21, uh, I think really just feeling the powerlessness of it all. It was a refugee camp, I think that had about 65,000 people from Angola, DRC, uh, Rwanda, a lot of people fleeing civil wars. It was a really difficult, dire place to get hands-on training uh, about what it would be like to work in this sector. And I found the work to be so essential. I almost felt like what I'm doing here doesn't even amount to a drop in the bucket. Like the problem is so vast and I don't even have like the first inkling of how I can actually make some sort of change. And I think if anything, you know, it just for me, it if I had to point to like one big life-changing experience, it would have definitely been the time I spent there. I think it put a lot of things in perspective for me. I talk about having won the sperm lottery. I really I really have. I got to, you know, be born to like the two most powerful countries in in the world. So it just made me really think differently I think about what I want in my life's work to be. I still know that that's eventually I think the contribution that I want to make in my life, but I think you have to combine so much of what you want the meaning of your career to be with, I think your strengths. I knew kind of from the very beginning, okay, I like, I'm someone who likes to see immediate impact. I like to see change. I'm an impatient person. And I think the skills that are truly necessary to be successful in that sector in in really like any sector, but especially in the nonprofit sector and the relief sector, I felt like those weren't things that came naturally to me. And so I, you know, I, I looked elsewhere. Where I guess
1: is the short of it. I, I started exploring other things. Yeah, yeah. So you went to um, a, a couple places that some people might consider the total opposite of the, the sort of nonprofit and relief work, uh, Bain, and uh, then private equity. Is that right? Yeah. You know, Bain was so. It's so funny you say that because yes, in retrospect, I realize it was
0: the polar opposite at the time. You know, when I was coming out of college and I was trying to decide whether I would go back to the camp or whether I. I would, you know, take another job. I think so much of it was like a there was the all of these banks and consulting firms were co- coming on campus and doing their their pitch and, you know, inviting us to all these like fancy cocktail
1: parties. And so you went, let, let me just break it and say you went to Harvard, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I just, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. My friends
1: who had done internships at these prestigious banks
0: would come back with like these huge signing bonuses in like figures, figures that I'd never seen before. Um, and it was kind of crazy to see that. Okay. Just by signing a check, uh, signing a contract saying that you were going to come back in the fall, you could receive a, a check. Right. And, uh, and I think when I met someone actually at Bain, this was someone who actually was interested in international development and was going, is wanting to go into international development. And she said, you know, I think of this as the best training ground for me. I never thought of going to Bain as a, as a training ground for something else, but very much, I think, um, took her word for it, ended up getting a job there. And so I started, I think, and that was, uh, I took, I ended up taking it a year in between college and Bain. I, I went to France and worked as a a tour guide, I should say a a bike tour guide. I was born in Paris and so part of it was like, I, I actually wanted to like understand what my birth country was about. But after that, I, I came back to New York and started my job there, uh, and I spent
1: basically three years uh, at Bain. Wow. Okay. And so so that is a, a, a path to entrepreneurship we see sometimes, which is the, the Harvard to Bain to starting a company. There were more things in between, but let's fast forward a couple of years here. Um, you, In the meantime, you were rejected from business school, you worked in private equity, and then you decided to start MM Lafleur. Tell me about the uh, origin of the company and the idea. Sure.
0: You know, it's funny you talk about my mom in the entrepreneurship context, but I really do think of the biggest impact that my mom had in, I think, starting MM was that, you know, every morning she would get up and uh, she, she'd she be in her PJs for a good portion of the morning, but then she would do her her Superman costume change, you know, she would, um, and I loved watching her get dressed. I loved watching her pick out her outfits and then pick out the the earrings and the, and the jewelry to go with it and then put on makeup. And then she'd go out the door. And I was like, wow, you know, I just, my, in my five-year-old girl's mind, I was like, there could have been nothing more inspirational. When I started my, you know, first quote unquote real job, uh, at Bain, I was, really shocked at how hard it was actually to get dressed in the morning. You know, there's a, a stat that we, we talk about with our customers, which is that women on average spend two more weeks per year versus men getting ready for work. I mean, it's just a crazy amount of time that women- Two care. weeks of time, exactly. That's insane. It's insane, right? And, and it's a <laughs> yes. crazy amount of time that we spend making sure that we look the part and I, I think I also really didn't like how much money I was spending at places that didn't inspire me, you know. So while I thought of my mom's costume change as like the most empowering thing, when I went shopping for workwear, if uh, quote unquote, like it was it really felt like the afterthought for all of these fashion designers, you know, nobody put any effort or thought into them. I felt like I was paying a lot of money for fabric that wouldn't hold up for, you know, fit. That wasn't great styles that really felt outdated. Uh, and so that was kind of the aha moment. A lot of also what I used to think about was how much money I was spending on dry cleaning. I had a dress that I had splurged on that I had loved. I think it cost me, you know, 300 and something dollars and I wore it all the time, uh, but it was dry clean only. So I would pay for dry cleaning. And I calculated that after five years of owning it, I had roughly spent a thousand dollars just on taking care of that dress, which again, it was just so crazy to me. I mean, dry cleaning is, is, uh, I think, famously sexist. You know, uh, women have to pay a lot more to get their pieces cleaned, even though um, the amount of fabric for your cleaning is actually less than, for example, men's
1: shirting. Yeah,
0: and bad for the environment, not
1: to mention. (laughs)
0: Totally, and bad for the environment. So I think that's where a lot of the kind of, wow, like, why isn't there something better out there? That feeling was percolating, you know, basically throughout my time, Working in the in the professional sector. But I never actually thought I would go and do something about it. I just remember saying to people, someone should do something about this. And, and I think, you know, were it not for kind of leaving my job in private equity in somewhat of a distraught
1: state, not knowing what it was that I was going to do next, I probably would have never started it. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, breaking into uh, clothing and make, building a brand is just a notoriously difficult thing to do. How did you set about doing it. Did you have a game plan when you started? Did you have mentors? Did you have an inspiration aside from just your mom? Well, I had a, I had a PowerPoint deck, which is <laughs> really <laughs> best. that's like, as a management consultant, I was like,
0: I know how to do two things well, and that's make PowerPoint decks and uh, Excel spreadsheets. So I was like, I got those two things down, but no, I really did not have any mentors when I started. And so it was just a lot of random connections. You know, my mom connected me to a friend of a friend who happened to own a garment factory in India. Actually, one of the probably most pivotal connections for me was um, connecting with a friend of mine from college who had gone to, um, textile design, who had gone on to study textile design. And she happened to know someone in the fashion sector. And so she connected me with that person who ended up introducing me to a headhunter who ended up introducing me to my co-founder. But you can kind of see the, you know, the friend of the friend of the friend who led to something. And it's just crazy because New York is... I mean, people call it the financial capital of the world, but it's also the, I would say, the fashion capital of the world. The garment district is five blocks south of where I used to work at Bain. And yet I felt like those worlds didn't collide at all. You know, I did not know anybody in fashion. And so I think it was a lot of just Putting feelers out there, you know, seeing if someone would be willing to talk to me.
1: And and how did you build your first, the first collection, the first or the first pieces that you were you were going to sell? I noticed that um, it's really classic, classic-looking workwear, Where, um, but with with a sort of modern twist, there's there's kind of clean lines and almost um, I can almost sense a bit of a Japanese aesthetic too in some of the pieces. Is that right? Yeah. Thank you. Well, you know, Miyako. Is Japanese.
0: She is born and raised in Kyoto, which is kind of the more, I would say, the artistic capital of Japan. I was not born in Tokyo, but raised in Tokyo. I don't think either of us were very intentional about the Japanese influences. You know, Miyako had had a really illustrious career in fashion working for Zach Pose and Jason Wu. I think. It was only in retrospect that we realized, you know, where our sensibilities lied. And I should say much more her sensibilities maybe than mine because, you know, she she's the one with the good taste. Um, but that was really a lot of it rooted in uh, Japanese aesthetics. I think simple, clean lines and things that weren't fussy. Like, you know, she doesn't do frills or she she doesn't do anything that actually doesn't serve a purpose. I think she's very clear about that. And that I think has been true from day one. I would say though, like, you know, what's interesting is I think when we launched the business back in 2013, people were dressing much more traditionally to the office. And so a lot of what she was designing were, you know, dresses that uh, were were more formal. A lot of our inspiration we were getting from brands like Roland Marais or Alexander McQueen, um, these like beautifully fitted dresses. But if you go to our site now, I think it will, almost wouldn't feel... Well, it would feel hopefully like the same company, but it would feel like the the designs have completely evolved because now we're doing things that are much more, I think, looser and comfortable. We're designing the way a lot of women want to dress now and frankly, sh- you know, should be dressing now to feel comfortable at work. Yeah.
1: I mean, has, has the pandemic like killed the sheath dress and the high heels? I mean, what, what do you feel about, about going forward and what, I mean, let's, let's I guess let's take that prediction before actually going back to look at what what happened to your business when the pandemic hit. Um but what's your prediction in terms of how we dress right now and and what's going to happen in the workplace and once we're all back?
0: It's so interesting. Uh, my kind of bet is that that sheath dresses will have a time and place. But it's not going to be your Monday through Friday outfit. I actually, for a moment there, um, you know, watching everything unfold during COVID, and our dress business was so significantly depressed. I thought, wow, I wonder if like that's the end of dresses. But um, actually, dresses picked up nicely with I would say the opening post COVID and temperatures rising. Um, and it's true; there's in some ways like nothing easier than a dress. It's it continues to be the Grown ups onesie, you put it on and you don't have to worry about anything else. So um, I think there was definitely going to be a a place for dresses going forward. The the comfort that we almost discovered during COVID, I think our our love for the elastic waistbands, that's not going away. And I think something that we've actually been doing even pre-COVID is how do you make a perfectly tailored, professional looking pair of slacks? also super comfortable. And so we had been making these elastic waistband pants for a really long time. Um, the Colby joggers, which, uh, we called them Colby origami suiting pants prior to the pandemic. Um, we repositioned them to Colby joggers during the pandemic and they continued to sell actually initially the, those pants, uh, the sales dropped immediately when COVID hit. And then when we changed the name to Colby joggers, they picked up again, uh, and, and actually became 8X of what it was during that initial phase after COVID. And so um, now, I mean, they continue to be one of our best-selling pants. And I think this idea of women, you do not have to kind of suffocate yourselves in the office to look professional. I think that I hope is a trend that's going to continue. We were seeing this trend even before COVID. We were specifically designing a line that we called Power Casual. When we talk about business formality, there's business formal, which is you know, a suiting business casual, which could be a skirt with a button down or a dress. We coined the term Power Casual because that's actually what a lot of women who worked in the tech sector, marketing, media, were coming to us back in 2017 saying like, you know, how do I dress for the office? Because I... Get that we don't need to wear suits but it's definitely not as though we can wear whatever we want there is a dress code um so that was our answer to it and i do think that's going to become a much bigger part of everyone's dressing going forward
1: yeah yeah people are looking for like interesting stuff that also is comfy right um so so to do that going forward i can i can see that's um a different challenge and i i love that you mentioned just changing the name of something to reflect a ca- more casual nature during the pandemic um seemed to seem to help sales but t- let's talk about uh early 2020 um where was the business at before the pandemic hit how had it grown over the past few years literally
0: Literally the week before the pandemic, we had had one of our best retail days. As in, so we had around I think eight stores pre-pandemic. We knew that COVID was happening because we saw our supply chain impacted. You know, we have suppliers. Our, a lot of our fabrics are from Italy. Um, we've got factory partners over in uh, Japan and in China, and so we we saw what was happening overseas. But I think hindsight's twenty twenty. But we were just kind of thinking this would be like the cholera outbreak that happened a few years ago this is something that won't cross borders uh, which could have couldn't have been further from the truth and literally a week after we had the the best retail sales day we closed every single one of our stores and we had i think we had forecasted seven different scenarios about how we thought the business could be affected this was you know pre shutdown and what happened to our business ended up <laughs> exceeding our worst expectations. It was pretty scary. It was dire for a while. I think our, our sales at one point dropped sixty percent, um, and we had to furlough a lot of our staff, including almost I think all of our retail staff. And you know, one of our biggest questions was whether to keep the warehouse open, which was a, a really big decision for us to make because we wanted our warehouse workers to be safe. And at the same time, if we knew we we closed the warehouse, our revenue would go to zero. Um, we couldn't keep e-com open either. Um, and then we would have to furlough everyone. Those are sleepless nights. Those are hard decisions. I've never felt, I think, kind of that weight of responsibility trying to address our team's needs while at the same time wanting to make sure we could continue to employ as many people as we possibly could. And thankfully, the business is like basically almost back to pre-pandemic levels, but we just never knew kind of where the end was, I think, especially in September, October. And then I think again, January, February, you know, we had these like glimmers of hope because we heard in September, October offices in, in Europe were starting to open up. And then very quickly closed all again. And so it was kind of this continuous like, oh, we were gonna be okay in three months. Oh, never mind. Oh, maybe next in the next three months. Oh, never mind. And having to consistently kind of switch strategy and tactics. Um, I mean, my executive team was meeting every single day, you know, just to just to kind of put out fires and, and decide how we were gonna how we were going to readjust to the new normal that we were just delivered. And, and really it wasn't till I would say March of this year that we, we were like, Oh my gosh, we might actually be at the end of this. And thankfully businesses started to pick up significantly. We're We're almost back to where we were, but it was a year of, of a
1: lot of sleepless nights i will say that yeah yeah absolutely how many employees were you up to um pre pandemic and then did you end up closing the warehouse did you end up making rash like big big decisions not necessarily rash but big decisions about staffing or how to manage, you know, were those stores going to close long-term or were they going to reopen someday?
0: So we did end up having to furlough, I think, most of our retail employees. We kept one store open. We kept Washington, D.C. Well, we reopened that in the fall, I think. So our store is two blocks from the White House. And I think with the new administration or not, we thought we would see some foot traffic and some activity there. And then, of course, you know, the riots happened. The insurrection happened in January, February. And I think we boarded up that store, including the riots that happened in post-George Floyd's murder in June, July. I think we boarded up and unboarded that store maybe four times. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it it was wild. It was in some ways an interesting store to keep open. You know, we never thought there would be such violence in DC, especially January, February. And so that was challenging. I very much continue to believe in retail. In fact, like I want to go and open more stores because I think we can talk more about marketing, but the digital marketing space is just getting more expensive, more competitive. I mean, this has been true from 2016, but I think the the key with retail is, or I should say, the key with marketing is you always want to be investing in channels where other players aren't. It's too expensive. You can't break through. I think retail, especially now when people have become very shy about it, I shouldn't say people, but the industry generally has become very shy about opening up storefronts. You know, we actually think that that is going to be an important part of our strategy
1: as we start to build back uh, our business. When we come back, I'll talk with Sarah about what the pandemic year taught her about running a healthy business. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which
0: means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI-powered place.
1: So over the past year, um, a, a few other interesting things have happened to you. Um, let's talk about your personal life a little bit. Um, th- this totally, totally wild thing happened um, after after years of of struggling um, with with having a family. Uh, you I'll let you tell the story, Sarah, because I, I cannot possibly do it justice. <laughs> I would say um, several years of IVF of infertility treatments. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Infertility. Yes, that's right. Infertility treatments and things not working. We ended up uh, deciding to go down the path of surrogacy, which was, you know, very... Not how we planned it, let's just say it that way. But we um, ended up meeting just the most wonderful woman uh, who agreed to be our surrogate around the same time. I also discovered that I was pregnant. I tried one last round of, of this of IVF uh, with a different protocol and that ended up working. You know, we welcomed three babies to our family um, last September. So it was wild. It was crazy and it, it was it has been most joyful.
1: I've really enjoyed it. I don't really know how else to put it, but it's been a, such a happy time in my life. It's amazing that, that that it happened. So the babies were born within like just weeks of each other. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, oh gosh. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was wild.
0: My grandmother actually passed away, not because of COVID, but I think, you know, it, I would put it in the category of COVID impacted. She was living alone, 93. Anyway, she decided it was time for her to go um, and her heart gave out. And then Um, She and I were incredibly close. You know, I, I, she was someone who I saw like kind of weekly, uh, if not more than that. So and that, and when she passed away, I was seven months pregnant and I couldn't actually go into the hospital to say goodbye to her. And that was really challenging. And then I think uh, delivering during COVID, uh, I ended up delivering in Mount Sinai in New York city. And that was one of the hospitals that, uh, at one point was refusing partners to come, even come into the hospital. I actually knew of, of several women who had gone into labor and given birth on their own. And because I, I had so many complications, I was just kind of like God, let this not be, you know, the case come August. Um, And I actually thought I was going to have to deliver much earlier, but I got so lucky. Um, He ended up hanging in there until 39 weeks. It was a scheduled, actually, well, it was a scheduled induction, which led to an emergency C-section, but my husband got to be there. And then six weeks later, we flew out to Minnesota, which is where our wonderful surrogate lives, and then welcomed our twins. It was wild experiencing death and life in in such kind of close proximity and I think,
1: you know, really one magnifying the other. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine how how you ever can, can manage to squeeze in any sleep with three newborns at the same time. <laughs> it doesn't like logistically uh, right. make any yeah. sense to me.
0: <laughs> it, it was one of those things where because you have three, there was no question in our minds that like we were gonna need help, yeah. you know? It wasn't like, I think actually when we first had just our, um son, um the one that I gave birth to, it was just me and my husband, and actually we were we were fine. my my husband also got paternity leave, and so we we managed just fine, but when the twins came it it became unmanageable very quickly. and we had a wonderful baby nurse and were it not for her. I don't think we would have no, lived. No. <laughs> And if the mother-in-law
1: also came to help. Let's just say, like a, a village, truly raised uh, these three babies up till this point. Oh, that's amazing. And and are you um are you like a, you're able to get into the office a few days a week? How is the balance going now? And um and and like has it taught you um have you learned anything new about about building a life while building a company?
0: It's so funny you you say this because like, I just, I was thinking about something that my mom used to say to me when I was a kid, when she was running her own business. And she always used to say like, my business is a business where the personal and the professional mix all the time. What she meant by that was like her company is I think predominantly women. It's not a big company, but she said, you know, for my employees, like are women who are juggling both like taking care of their aging parents or taking care of their kids, as well as coming to work. And so when the phone rings, you always pick it up. And if you have to leave, you have to leave. And that's what happens. And as someone who is working at Bain or in private equity, where, I mean, I like slept what, six hours a day when I was lucky and otherwise basically you know, gave myself to my job. I kind of saw that maybe initially as weakness, you know, as like, well, how are you ever supposed to grow a company if your personal life is constantly kind of interfering? Even that word interfering is is the wrong word to use. But I see now that my mom was, in fact, right all along. And I think once again, ahead of her time, what Covid has taught me is, you know we we talk about making accommodations for women so that they can, do both but maybe it's really the men who should actually be engaging more in their family life and that's actually the better way to live to be able to be our whole the whole person you know so you're not you're not owned by your job from 9 a.m to 5 p.m because like that's not how babies work they cry whenever they want to cry older people get sick whenever you know that strikes, and to say that okay, when you're in the office, that those are the hours where we own you, and that's the time you give to the company, it just actually feels so antithetical to I think a lot of the things that we have we now as a society really agree to be um, important, which is you know being around for the people who need you. I am really trying to understand what that means for my company. Um, I think we've always been very flexible in terms of working from home and whatnot, but. We have to take it one step further, I think, for retail employees and hourly employees. And I think that's my biggest challenge next, because in some ways, hourly employees were depending on people to be uh, someplace at a certain time. How are we going to try to find more flexibility for even people like that? who are on a set schedule. I think that kind of one of my big
1: challenges as CEO going back to the office post-COVID. I, I mean, you're you're obviously not the only one rethinking this, but despite all the thinking and talking I hear about rethinking our work days, rethinking minimum wage, rethinking all these standard practices in offices, I, I'm not seeing that much change yet. I'm seeing like little, little bits of it like, mm. oh, our, we're adding this new HR benefit. You know, you mm-hmm. can have, you know, a a therapist on your app or whatever is small things, you know, do you think there, <laughs> do you think there will be like a real change in, in the workplace, not just in yours, but in, in others? Do you think over the next year or two, we will see shifts that are meaningful? You know, I don't think if, unless you shift,
0: I worry that your company will lose people. I think even just in terms of flexibility, in my, my C-level executives, my executive team, I've had two people leave the city completely. Those two people are amazing talents and I don't want to lose them. And we have discovered during COVID that actually they can do the majority of their work from wherever we're going to make that happen and we you know actually i would say also my junior employees i would say maybe half of them have left the city now they've gone to austin denver portland where have you we're in the process of going through every single job description to say okay does this actually need to be in the office or can this be remote we are finding that actually the majority of roles actually will not have to be in the office anymore for a startup like ours that is trying to remain competitive and hire the best talent like that's an important benefit that we get to offer whereas goldman goldman can say everyone back in the office Monday through Friday. And I'm sure they would still get good talent, but you know if you're not Goldman and you want to keep your best people like what are you going to do differently i think ceos it won't just be lip service they will be forced to
1: reckon with this challenge great um sarah i want to go back a little bit because i i kind of skip forward too quickly i want to ask you about the the biggest challenges in the first couple of years of of building the business so so tell me right right you know it, in the year or two after you started um i imagine it was an intense time period of hiring of raising venture capital um and and how how how, like, how did you approach the, that period of growth and what was the biggest challenge you faced during it? I think we had focused so much of our energy on just getting the product right. We were working with
0: some of the best mills in Italy and Germany and Japan. And we were working with these high-end factories in New York City, delivering, I would say, high-end designer clothing. Actually, so much so that we once brought our clothes to a high-end department store and they said like, why aren't you selling this for like $750? And we were saying, well, that's exactly the point. You know, we are direct to consumers. So we get to create these beautiful clothes and hopefully sell it at a price that a lot more women find affordable. I was a little bit um, naive about what it would take to then actually sell these dresses. And I think I was naive about e-commerce. You know, I, I think um, having worked at Bain, you know, some of the alumni had started, Warby Parker, Bonobos, Birchbox, and they all seem to be kind of e-commerce successes from the get-go, at least from the outside. That's how it seemed. And I thought, wow, this e-commerce thing looks so easy. You just put your product on the site and success. And You know, it was anything but. I think it was really, really challenging to communicate the quality and the fabric and the the construction of our, our clothing online. You know, online, you can make anything look good online. You know, you can make a $15 dress look beautiful with the right lighting, the right model, the right makeup, the right photographer. People came to our site and they just like didn't get it. And it wasn't until we launched what we then called the Bento program, which We actually no longer have, but we launched this program in a moment of desperation when we were sitting under a mountain of dresses of inventory, uh, which is like every retailer's nightmare, not knowing how to move them. And we ended up reaching out to our, our small group of existing customers, saying, "Hey, if we send you a box of our clothes, you know, we'll we'll pick them for you, but we'll send them to you and keep whatever you like, return whatever you don't like. Would you be willing to try it?" And a surprising number of customers said, "Like." Hey, yeah, that sounds great. Like, send it to me. That sounds easy. I'm too busy to go on your site anyway. Like, that would be awesome. And then we actually trialed that with new customers, customers whose emails we had, but who hadn't actually shopped with us yet. We had converted more customers off that one pitch than we had over any sort of marketing campaign we had done up until that point. That was the light bulb moment for the business is is seeing that, you know, customers really just couldn't understand why our dresses cost what they did, uh, unless they, they saw it and touched it and felt it in person. We ended up making more money off of that, that one pitch, uh, than we had any time leading up to that. Um, I think we, we were in business for about a year and a half at that point, uh, and really struggling to find our footing. And it was really after we found Bento that the business just took off, you know, we went from, I think like 300,000 to one million to eight million to thirty to sixty. You know, it was just like kind of rocket ship growth that everyone talks about. That was the aha moment, I think, initially in the business. But you know, as I mentioned, we don't even have bento now.
1: Yeah. So you've you've pivoted the the kind of model a couple of times in terms of the model of sales. Um, that bento box, I remember seeing it and thinking, oh, another online box thing, you know, there were so many subscriptions, but it it wasn't really a subscription model. Um, it was just sort of putting you in that realm and in that trend for a moment. Um, is, is there, um, do you have anything like that now or is it strict e-commerce, um, you know, on your site now? No, actually, you know, we're, we're, Seeing this moment, kind of again, at, with our virtual
0: styling appointments. So I think part of the the proposition with MM is obviously it's the clothing is beautiful and practical, well made. But I think our stylists have always been a huge part of that. So even in the bento service, you know, a lot of the times our stylists were recommending products for our customers because women would come to us saying like. I have a conference. I have no idea what to wear, or I just had a new baby and my body is totally different. Like help me dress. So much of it was actually holding her hand through this kind of somewhat anxiety inducing time. And, and so we launched um, virtual styling actually after COVID hit because in our stores, we used to offer these one-on-one appointments, you know, all the time. That's actually how a lot of our customers like to shop. And we couldn't do that anymore during COVID. So we launched virtual appointments and, That is now on track to do as much as kind of two retail locations that we have combined. Uh, And I think customers are really seeing the convenience of it. Okay, you're sitting in front of your desk all day long. You've got, you know, 30 minutes. Um, You want to go shopping. You get to to do that through your computer screen and work with a human being who's going to actually do all the picking for you. We thought this was going to be a pandemic thing, but I think actually it's one of the most Working women, mom friendly things you can do, we can continue to offer. And so that's going to be something that we'll stick with post COVID. And, you know, in some ways, I think COVID, well, like as challenging as it was, there was innovation. There was a lot of innovation that happened. And uh, that was certainly one of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you have, um, do you have goals for the next? Couple years. I mean, do you do you think you'll re- you'll be able to get back to having eight stores open and the digital advisors online, and you know, and continue growing? Um, I mean, what's what's your biggest goal for for the future now?
0: I'm just so proud of the the team who who stuck with us. You know, it's a a smaller team, but a really almighty one, and they have worked. I think so hard just to, to make this turnaround happen, you know, in some ways we're really battle tested. And I think, and I I don't think anything can scare us anymore. We will definitely get back to where we were. I mean, at this point, it's not even a question of if it's when, because, you know, we, we just see the revenue growth in the numbers. So that's really exciting. I think September is just going to be another boost to that because a lot of people actually, even today, aren't even back in the office. I'm not worried about that. What I want to do is to finish the work that we started. And really, that is really to become a world-renowned fashion brand for, for working women. That mission continues. I definitely want to open more stores. I definitely want more women to know about us. And I just want us to make keep making amazing products. We get these emails. We actually just got an email yesterday from a woman who said, you know, I, I love MM. My entire closet's full of MM. I got engaged. I decided to go wedding dress shopping and nothing just felt like me. And so what I want to do is wear an MM dress and can you make one of my favorite dresses for me in ivory? And so we're going to make that happen for her. That's the kind of, I think, love that people who know us, uh, have for us. And I just want to keep nurturing that
1: you're a very feminist brand too. Um, you, you actually made a, um, sort of a pledge to, to dress any woman who wanted to run for office. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That, that actually happened right before the pandemic started, but, yeah,
0: you know, 2020, uh, January, we launched a campaign called "Ready to Run." Back in 2016, right after the election, presidential election, we had actually, you know, because I think regardless of where you are on the spectrum, a lot of people thought, "Okay, Hillary's going to win." We, oh yeah, it was surprising to everyone, right? Everyone, right? Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, we had had a pantsuit email prepared, which obviously we realized we couldn't send out the following day. You know, I think the mood in the atmosphere was shock and surprise, and so we sent out an email to our customers saying, "Hey." whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, we want to hear from you right now. Like what can we do more to help further your causes, uh, in whatever you believe in? We ended up getting 1200 responses in the first 24 hours. It was insane. Just kind of overwhelming response to this pretty like simple, straightforward email. So many women said just, how do we get more women elected? Period. Doesn't even have to be for president, just elected. We spent some time thinking about that. We started pressing a lot of political candidates at that point. I just kind of on a one-off basis. Actually, I saw Cynthia Nixon who ran for New York governor. New York. Yeah. Yeah. 2018. And I actually saw her at this cafe once. And so I ran over and I gave her my card and I said, I love sex, sex in the city, but you know, deep down, I'm a Miranda I'm just wondering, you know, I know you're running for governor. Can we dress you? And she said, yes, of course. She actually wore M.M. for a good portion of her campaign trail. We realized that a lot of our women slowly, slowly but surely were becoming people who worked in in politics. And so when 2020 came around and we actually said, like, what's actually something that we can do something about as opposed to, you know, just kind of paying lip service to wanting to get more women elected, we decided, you know, actually, this is something we know how to do well. We know how to dress women in politics. I thought it was going to be a relatively small campaign, but as you said, ended up going totally viral. Uh, Outlets in Croatia were writing about it. Hillary Clinton tweeted about it. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted about it. And she actually, she, she put it best. I think she said, you know, so much of trying to get elected is getting your constituents to see you in that light, to see you in the role of representing them. And clothing plays such an important role in that, whether we like it or not. While we never purport to actually um, be able to change, I think the to female representation, I, I'm hoping that we made it easier for a few women. And we definitely heard from a lot of women who were saying, you know, I, I could never afford clothes like this. So thank you. Or we had women, women's who said, I live on the poverty line. I'm the mother of two teenage boys. And I really think it's important for Rhode Island, uh, constituents to see people like me representing them. So it was a really meaningful campaign for us and we'd love to do it again.
1: I remember being in DC. I was from one of my, a couple of my first reporting jobs were in DC, um, one at congressional quarterly. And I I would just feel like such a strange person, the way I dressed there. And I dressed very, kind of normal yeah. but I would wear a black suit but with like pink shoes and I felt like people were staring at me oh, on do metro. Yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> whoa pink color <laughs> like we've never like it's you know the scene before Pleasantville when uh like th- everything goes from black and white to color I think it's right you know I think that's definitely true I, although it's also interesting to see, I think slowly, slowly, even the Congresswomen are pushing the the envelope. I'm seeing a lot more color. I'm even seeing some sheath dresses, less sheath dresses. I get that for staffers, journalists who are covering that, the requirements are, are even stricter. I just hope they can feel like themselves. Even if they're under some sort of guidance, I think that's actually what we do really well is okay, like we get that there's a dress code, but how do we actually make you feel like you're being yourself, that you're not nervously sweating, wondering if you're like dressed appropriately or feeling like a robot?
1: You know, we want you to like be able to bring your best self to the office mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and maybe eventually push that dress code to more interesting places. Yeah, for
0: sure. For sure.
1: Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank you so much. After speaking with Sarah, I just love her winding path to starting a company. It's almost as if she tried and tried to not follow in her mom's entrepreneurial path. But as a career, it's the one thing that gave her the deep satisfaction she craved, and it fit her personality. The company she named after her mother has given her an expertise in workwear, and it was fascinating to talk to her about how the pandemic has affected the way all of us dress and what's really changing and will still change in the clothing industry. It's been a very challenging year for Sarah and her company, and it's totally remarkable that she went through the very life-altering birth of three babies at home, too. That, plus the pandemic, caused Sarah to rethink how people work and how we prioritize things in our lives. How her company can find a truly healthy balance for its workers is one of her top priorities right now, and I think we'll see that across industries. Sarah recalled that her mother said, My business is a business where the personal and the professional mix all of the time. And I really liked Sarah's modern interpretation of that. Allow yourself to be the whole person, whether at home or at work or both. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you liked what you heard, we have a really small favor to ask you. Please hit subscribe or follow wherever you are listening so you don't miss our next episode. I've asked you before, and I will ask you once again, if you have a friend interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, please send them a link to our show. And if you have an idea of a founder you'd love to hear, drop us a note, at know at inc.com. You can also let me know directly on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer, who's hoping basketball shorts are the new business casual, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Ligorio Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.